I want to share two passages of scripture with you this morning. Uh, first, from the book of the prophet Isaiah, and then secondly, um, from the Gospel of Mark. Now, Isaiah is the longest of the prophetic works, comes first in the, uh, in the arrangement of the order of the Bible. And uh, for early Christians, it certainly was the most important of the prophetic books to help these early Christians understand uh, the meaning, the deep, ironic meaning of Jesus' life, his ministry, his death, particularly his death, and his resurrection. What was it about the death of Jesus and his resurrection that was different? And it was to the book of Isaiah that they looked, um, to the great uh, songs of the suffering servant, um, one who would take on the sins of the world and in doing so change human history. And so they looked to the book of Isaiah, which is composed of several different parts. The first section of Isaiah has to do with the prophecies concerning the uh, illness that beset Judean society or the sin that beset Judean society because they had abandoned God. They were not following the commandments of God. They were living oblivious to the needs of the poor. They had a willful ignorance about the troubles that are around them. And Isaiah said, if you keep living this way, oblivious to human needs and ignorant and, in a sense, discarding the commandments of God, then nothing but good can, nothing good can come of it. And of course, that's what happens. The Babylonians rise up and they conquer the Judean kingdom. They take the king and all the elite members of Judean society and cut them off across the, uh, on the, across the desert to Babylon, what you and I would call Baghdad, in the middle of the Tigris-Euphrates Valley for a period of 50 years, the exile. Not enslavement, but exile, cast off from the land that was promised. The second section of Isaiah has to do with prophecies of consolation. These great troubles and travails having befallen the people because that they turned their back on God, God did not turn God's back on them. God promised to restore them to the land, to fulfill the promise, to work with them and create an adjust of equitable society, a decent, humane place where the needs and the identity, the dignity of each person would be affirmed. The God of Israel is unlike the other gods of the ancient Near East. The religions, the, the folklores, the myths of other ancient Near Eastern religions are composed primarily of gods who seek to be served, who are jealous and who are spiteful and very often capricious and petty, um, who need to be mollified and satisfied. A lot of the religious life in other ancient Near Eastern cultures is devoted to mollifying and placating and satisfying the gods so they will, one, not visit a great plague upon you, and secondly, that they will provide fertility for families and for animals, for land, for crops, water, 
essential in a semi-arid environment. Um, these gods had to be, in a sense, satisfied. And along comes the God of Israel, who instead of asking to be satisfied, shows the people how to live in a way that honors their identity, each other as children of God, to create a just and equitable society. A God who seeks to serve rather than to be served. And so ironically, one serves the God of Israel by serving other people. The attribute that defines God, therefore, is that God is faithful to the promises that God has made. It's a little, it's a little bit like a primeval dating app of how do people and a God find each other. And God says to Israel, I will be your God and you will be my people. And I will not abandon you. Even when you abandon me, even when you turn your back on me, even when you disrespect me by disregarding the commandments that I will give you, I will not forget you, I will not leave you, I will be with you, and I will help you. This is, you know, it's, it's impossible to overstate the, the transformation in human consciousness that's entailed in that recognition. And so this passage from the prophet Isaiah, from the message of consolation, God will energize the limp hands, strengthen the rubbery knees, tell fearful souls, take courage, take heart, for God is here. God is right here. God's way will put things right to redress all the wrongs, for God is on the way. God will save you. Blind eyes will be opened. Deaf ears will be unstopped. Lame men and women will leap like deer. The voiceless break into song. Springs of water will burst out in the wilderness. Streams will flow in the desert. Hot sands will become like a cool oasis. The thirsty ground a splashing fountain. So you can see how these words begin to provide such a fertile background, undergirding the consciousness and understanding of the early Christians. They find in Jesus his care and ministry to people who are afflicted, becoming living water to people, to a woman at the Samaritan well, is fulfilled this prophecy, this understanding about the faithfulness, the trustworthiness, the goodness, the compassion of God. And so in the Gospel of Mark, we have the wonderful story of when Jesus traveled to the north to go to a land that you and I would call Lebanon, the city of Tyre in the north outside the land of Israel. And there he has an encounter, which is told in the Gospel of Mark as well as Matthew, about a woman with a, an encounter with a woman who was a Gentile, not a Jew, 
Um, she was of Syrophoenician origin. She was descended from the Phoenician, from Syria. Jesus went there to the vicinity of Tyre, far to the north, and he entered a house where he didn't think anyone would find him. Isn't this an interesting phrase? Jesus went to a house where he thought no one would find him. He wanted a little peace and quiet. Jesus is reported regularly as stepping aside, going to a quiet place, resting, renewing, praying, meditating. It's essential to Jesus' identity. Goes to a house where he didn't think anybody would find him, but he couldn't escape notice. He was barely inside when a woman who had a disturbed daughter heard that he was there. She came to him. She knelt at his feet, begging him for help. The woman was Greek, a Gentile, Syrophoenician by birth. But she wanted, asked Jesus to cure her daughter. Jesus replied, stand in line. Wait your turn. The children get fed first. If there's anything left over, the dogs will get it. Wow. Jesus, meek and mild. <laughs> it's like going to the deli counter at the, uh, at the supermarket. Get a number. Wait your turn. You know, stand in line. Wait your turn. It's remarkable the way he responds. Oof. Now, the woman in her reply, demonstrates for you a wonderful rhetorical trick. Okay. And it's this. If something says to you, somebody says something to you that's really outrageous, offensive, reply this way. Of course, master. If somebody says something to you really outrageous, say, oh, I can see what you mean. Yes, of course. It's a great way to turn the conversation. Of course, Master, she says, but even the dogs under the table do get the scraps dropped by children, right? And so she has the temerity, the strength, the faith. Notice how here about faith and temerity are joined together. Faith is not a passive acceptance of what is. Faith is the active Assertion of what ought to be. And so Jesus says to her, you are right. You can see Jesus change his mind because of this woman. He was impressed. You are right. Be on your way. Your daughter is no longer disturbed. The demonic affliction is gone. And so the woman went home and found her daughter on the bed and her torment was gone for good. Jesus then left the region of Tyre, went through Sidon back to Galilee and over to the district of the Ten Towns, another Gentile region. And some people brought a man who could neither hear nor speak. And he asked Jesus, 
to lay a healing hand upon him. Jesus took the afflicted man apart by himself and he put his ears into the man's ears. And he took some spit and put it on his tongue. And then Jesus looked up in prayer, groaned mightily, and commanded Ephatha, Ephatha, which is Greek. It means be opened, Aramaic actually, be opened. And it happened. The man's hearing was clear, and his speech was plain, just like that. Now Jesus urged them to keep quiet about all this, but they talked it up all the more. Beside themselves, with excitement they were, they said he's done it all, and he's done it well. He gives hearing to the deaf and speech to the speechless. They know their scriptures. This is like the promise of Isaiah being fulfilled in their own time. To be opened. The commandment, be opened, ephatha, would seem to me to be a remarkably poignant and relevant commandment for us today to be opened. Because what's happening more and more with the pandemic and the great coming to terms, coming to a moral accounting with the history of systemic racism in our nation, the terrible ways in which so many people's lives have been turned upside down, the growing division amongst us and between us, separating us further and further apart. We're closing down. We're going into silos. We're not listening to each other. We're talking, but we're not listening. We need to be not closed in, but opened to the world. So much of what's happening is really a kind of estrangement from each other, right? This estrangement, which keeps us from each other, is the very opposite of God's dream for our lives, of course. In a moment, we will share in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, Holy Communion. We call it Holy Communion because we're with each other. It's not Holy Division. It's not holy estrangement, it's holy communion. The earliest Christians thought of communion, this sacrament given to us by Jesus at his command, they thought of communion as medicine. Medicine for what ails us. And what ailed them, what ails us, is this estrangement which gives each of us over to hatred and greed and to distrust and disharmony and to a life that's oblivious to what's going on and a willful ignorance of what's around us. When we partake of communion, we are inevitably and compellingly drawn into 
connection with each other. Communion helps us to see what's really happened and is happening in our lives and calls us to see each other, to be with each other, to hear each other, to listen, deep listening uh, to each other, to truly be together. It is the medicine for what ails us. This is the great insight this past week of Mary Lutie in one of the still-speaking daily devotionals from the United Church of Christ. My deep gratitude for Mary, to Mary for reminding me of this, that communion is medicine for what ails us. I loved hearing Barbara sing, Give Me Jesus. You know, in the morning when I rise and at night when I lie down, when the days are tough, when I'm at the end of my life, give me Jesus, right? When Jesus said to Peter in the Gospel of Matthew, I give you the keys of the kingdom. This has been understood, and I think largely interpreted throughout human history, Christian history, as meaning that Peter has the power to lock the door against those who are deemed the great unwashed, those who are not acceptable, right? I think Jesus meant exactly the opposite. He gives them the doors, the keys, to unlock the doors, to cast wide the portals, not to stand there with a clipboard toting up our merits and demerits at the pearly gates. The keys of the kingdom are to cast wide the portals of paradise for us all. So to be opened is to be aware at a conscious level to choose, to choose to be conscious of the presence of God in every moment. The day, this day, every day, is a gift. If nothing else goes right in this day, we have something to be thankful for, which is this day. As my grandfather always said, I'm on top of the grass. To live with a consciousness, an awareness, an intentional attentiveness, attentiveness to the presence of God, the love of God, to be opened, to be opened to the love of God. Amen.